Amen, how true death is arrested. You know, this past week I had the privilege and honor to uh, lay to rest uh, one of my mentors back in my hometown of Maryland, and so I traveled back and, and uh, preached at his funeral. And, you know, I was reminded as I was preaching that funeral sermon that death has a funeral. Did you know that? Death has a funeral. In Christ, death has a funeral. One day, death will be dead. Sin will be undone. That song we just sang, full freedom will be realized when death is arrested. Thanks for being with us this morning. I want to welcome our Lexington campus and uh, Shelby campus. Can we give them a hand for joining us? Those online, we praise the Lord for you. By the way, big news this morning at our Shelby campus, uh, we are adding a second service there beginning in the new year, so we're excited about that. And, uh, and so that'll happen at 9 and 11, just like our services here. So we're excited about what God is doing. Pastor Josh is doing a fantastic job in Shelby, and uh, we're grateful for how God is at work, and we're anticipating opportunities to reach more people. By the way, that's why we have these campuses. The idea of these campuses there in Lexington and Shelby is not just to be consumers. The idea is not just to make a church for you. It is meant to be a place where you can invite your neighbors you can invite your friends, your coworkers. Uh, the whole idea of campuses is helping neighbors reach their neighborhoods. And so we're thankful for what God is doing at our campuses, uh, even our city center, what God is doing there. Just some news coming up about that in the future. If you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, there is one under the seat in front of you, or you could turn in your electronic devices to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at page 996 in our chair back Bibles. As you turn there, our teaching team has gotten together. We put together a guide for you, and this is available at every campus, our, our uh, what we're calling Advent devotional guide. As we journey into Christmas, we thought it would be a great time to really journey together and really anticipate this Christmas season by reflecting on what Christ has done for us in coming to this earth. And so we put together an Advent devotional guide. You can look this up on our app. It's also on our website, so you don't have to grab a physical copy. You can have one right with you. But if you want a physical copy, there's one at every campus. You can get them in the lobby there at each campus. And so we'd love for you to grab this. Our teaching team has done a great job putting this together. Uh, you'll see the devotionals that each of us have written in there, and uh, we want to make that available to you. We're excited about this, our first time doing an Advent devotional guide. So grab this on your way out if you would like or look it up online. We're in a series that we have called Legacy, and the reason we've called it that is because Paul is writing his last will and testament, his last letter, the Apostle Paul, writing to his young protege, Timothy, a young man that he had joined him on his missionary journeys, a, a young man that he was able to see faith develop in him, and then released him as a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, and encouraging him in a devastating time. The world had changed at this moment. Paul was sitting in a prison cell in a ground. He was going to die. He wasn't going to make it out. There was no way of escape, and he knew it. And so he's writing to encourage Timothy, who is walking through some difficult times with his church in Ephesus. In the chapter 1, we saw that Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, fan the flame of the gift of God in you. Don't forget what God has done in you. Fan that flame of God's gift. He then says at the end of chapter 1, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the message which I have now instilled to you. We come to the end of chapter one, into chapter two, and we talked about this idea that whether you have frustration or fear or fatigue or failure, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. He says, Timothy, you are a soldier. You're an athlete. You, you are a farmer. The seed that's going in the ground will come. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. And then last week, we look at this challenge in chapter 2 where Paul says to Timothy, uh, Timothy, if you want to be useful for God, if you want to have endurance in your use, you got to be a worker approved unto God. A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed because you rightly divide the word of truth. If you and I want to be useful, we want to be clean vessels, vessels, honorable vessels for God, we want to make sure we're people of the book, that we are people rightly dividing the word of truth, that we are gleaning from God's word and reflecting God's word as clean vessels before God. Now chapter three is kind of a transitional chapter. 
He, he kind of goes into a different topic you don't expect him to go to as he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, as he's writing to his young student, his son. And chapter 3 kind of dives into a wrestling match that Timothy was certainly having, but you and I have as well. I had it this week. I don't know about you, but you probably, the other morning, uh, woke up or was traveling to work or got the news on the radio or however you did on TV, and you saw the news about another shooting at a school in California. This past week, I was bombarded with the needs in our own church. We have some people, a, 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 a great lady in our church that found out that she has cancer, but not only cancer, but this cancer is spread in places that are, that are unreasonable, places we don't want it to be. Uh, think of a family that lost a loved one this past week and put to rest a loved one and, and just the, 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 lack of, the lack of hope in that moment and wondering in that moment and, and trying to understand Christ in that moment, right? All of us face these things. We wonder in those moments, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, are you really in control? God, do you really care? Anybody ever feel that way this week? Anybody feel, God, are you there? We all felt that. I felt that. You probably have felt that. We read the news, we, we read the newspaper, we watch the news, we turn these things on and we wonder what in the world is God doing? And there's a thirst in us, in, isn't there? There's a thirst in us for something better. There's a thirst in us, a hunger in us for uh, something better in life, a better world. If people could just get together, if people could just get along, man, it would be a better world. And that thirst is not only in followers of Christ, it actually finds itself in people that don't know Christ. Any Beatles fans out there? Anybody a fan of the Beatles back in the day? John Lennon wrote a song called Imagine. It's a well-known song. Obviously, all the Beatles songs are uh, award-winning. But he wrote a song called Imagine. And I want you to consider the words of this song. I think it gives insight into the thirst that we have for something better. Here's the words. It says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today, living with each other in every possible way. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people with no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world together. Imagine all the people living for today. That's the words of that song. Imagine. John Lennon wrote that song imagining the thirst and the hunger that there would be a better world, a world where people would come together, a world where there would be no need for heaven or hell, no need for religion, where people would gather together and just get along. No school shootings, no starvation, no racism, no families that are falling apart, the people would just come together. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's a yearning in all of us. There's one missing perspective. There was one, there was one problem to that reality. The problem in the problems of the world, of, of, in our country, in the world, the problems of the world around us, the one problem that, that kind of stands out to all the problems is people. Isn't it true that the issues of the world the problem with our world is people. I love what theologian and philosopher, an old theologian named G.K. Chesterton, he was interviewed by a newspaper, and they asked him, why do you think there are so many problems in the world? What do you think is the issue in the world? What's wrong in the world? And he answered it with these two words. He said, I am. I'm the problem with the world. The problem is me. It's not just politics or social issues or religious problems. It's not just emotional things. The problem with the world is people. The problem with our church is that I walked into it. The problem with our church is that you walked into it. The problem with our, uh, the world around us, the problem that keeps us from getting the world that John Lennon wrote about is people. People's hearts are more darker and bleaker than we can ever imagine. And as Christians... It can leave us thinking that God has just left us to our own vices. It can leave us thinking that God is never going to return. It leaves us feeling like a kid left in their classroom after church, and it seemed that the parents have left them there, and they wonder if the parents are ever going to come get them. 
By the way, we have that happen sometimes. Where parents, you know, begin to talk in the lobby and they chat and then they forget about the time or they're waiting to get a, a coffee from the coffee shop before they leave and they kind of forget about the kids. And sometimes that can be intentional, right? They can be just like, I'm going to leave them there. See if, see if Crossroads will just take care of them for a while. And so you walk out. But you imagine that? Remember, you know, kids, we have kids that sometimes will be like, is my mom and dad ever going to come get me? We have to remind them, no, your parents are going to come. They're not going to leave you here. We have no child left behind here. We'll make sure you get home one way or the other. But we can begin to feel like a kid who's been forgotten in the nursery. And we feel like, well, God, you said you're coming back. God, you said you're going to work. God, you died on the cross. You rose again. You promised to come again. Where are you? And we begin to feel overwhelmed and wonder, is God ever going to return? What's ironic here is if Paul was going to encourage Timothy, it would make sense for him to say, hey, Timmy, things are going to be okay. Things are going to work out well. But what Paul here does is he doesn't paint a false picture of the future. He gives a real picture of the earth, the world that we live in. Take a look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to I look as we dive into this text at four identifying marks of the last days. We're going to find four identifying marks of the last days. Take a look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. It says, but understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. Four identifying marks of the last days. Number one, life will grow increasingly difficult in the last days. Life will go, grow increasingly difficult in the last days. I want you to look at verse one there. I don't know about you, but immediately when I come to verse one, it says, but understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. The first thing that my eyes are drawn to is the phrase, the last days. Isn't it true? I don't know about you, but when I read this, my, the first thing that comes to mind is, wait a minute, it says the last days there, pay attention. We live in a culture infatuated with the end times. We live in a culture that's, that's really inundated with the idea of when is this going to happen. Our eyes immediately are drawn to any word that talks about the end times, the last days. We're infatuated. In fact, can I tell you, it's not just Christians. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I would argue that Hollywood is infatuated with the end times. Think about every movie that is made that is apocalyptic in nature. We have Hollywood that's overwhelmed with end times. How is it going to end? What's it going to look like? Zombie apocalypse, the end of days, Sylvester Stallone, right? There's all these movies that are made about the end times. Why? Because we're infatuated with the last days. How is it all going to end? What's going to happen when the end does come? Now, some of us, we begin as we live life, to see that as some distant existence, some far reality, as if it's just never going to come. But the Bible actually emphasizes it. What do I mean? The Bible speaks a lot about the end times. I don't know if you know this or not, just a few factoids for us. Do you know that one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy? A quarter of the Bible is actually prophetic. The Old Testament gives 1,800 references of the return of Jesus Christ. Think about that. The Old Testament gives 1,800 references about the return of Jesus Christ in the future. In the New Testament, there are 300 verses that make reference to the return of Christ. That means in the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's emphasized. Or how about this? For every statement about the first coming of Jesus in the Bible that he would come and die on a cross for us and rise again. For every statement about the first coming, there are eight statements about the second coming. 
So the emphasis in the Bible is prophetic. The emphasis in the Bible is that God is going to come again. There will be a day the kingdom will come. God will keep his word as he said. The first promise of his coming is proof that the second promise of his coming will happen. It's going to happen. The, the disciples, by the way, were curious. They were curious about this. In fact, Matthew 24, we see this interaction where they ask Jesus this question. Matthew 24, 3, it says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us, when will all these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end, end of the age? Jesus, when are you going to actually set up your kingdom? When will the end of the age be? And Jesus answered them and said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. He goes on, Jesus goes on and talks about the tribulation and the second coming. Here's the point. Everything we see in our world today is proof that the end days are here, that we are living in the last days. We see tornadoes, we see earthquakes, we see wars, we see kingdoms against kingdoms. All of these signs are signs that one day the birth of the kingdom, the birth of the coming of Christ will take place. They're all birth pains, reminding us the birth yet to come. So what we find in the scripture is that there is no other sign that needs to happen for Christ to split the sky and come back. Think about that. There is no other sign in our world that needs to happen. All that we see today is a repeat of these birth pains just happening. Now Jesus goes one step further. He doesn't emphasize when this is going to happen. In fact, in Matthew 24, he continues. At the end of chapter 24, verse 40, 36, he says these words. He says, but concerning that day and hour, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? Concerning that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows of the era. If anybody comes and says, the Lord's returning in 2020, certainly they could be right, but if they try to give a date, you punch them in the face. <laughs> in the name of Jesus. No, 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 no one knows. Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows. None of us can know. And this is what we find throughout the Bible. Here's the point. When you read the New Testament, the last days becomes the expression of all those living after Jesus came the first time until he comes the second time. So the period of the last days are happening right now. We are in the last days. And if the last days were true for Paul, aren't they also true for us? We are in the fourth quarter of the game. Think about that for a moment. What happens when teams are in the fourth quarter? Unless you're Ohio State playing the Rutgers. <laughs> in the fourth quarter, what happens? Focus intensifies. Eyes begin to be gazed on what matters. Life begins to take deeper form. You begin to live in a power you didn't know you have. Why? Because you're ready to win this game. You know you got to dig a little deeper. You're tired. The game's in the, it's been three quarters. you got to dig a little deeper. If you're going to win the game, the fourth quarter matters. We are in the fourth quarter of the last days. It's true. So Paul, knowing this, says to Timothy, but understand this, know this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. It's the idea that there will be a progressive nature of evil as the days get latter. In fact, the word here, difficulty, is not as soft as our English, paint, English paints it. The word difficulty here actually is the word fierce or the word violence. As the end comes, the days get all the more violent, get, get all the more fierce. Paul here is not writing a Hallmark movie. Paul here is writing not to intimidate Timothy, but to warn Timothy. I read this, and I can't help but to, to think of a pilot who is leading the plane into turbulence. Have you ever been on a plane leading, led into turbulence? What does a pilot do? He comes on the loudspeaker. Can I have your attention, please? 
This is your captain speaking. Oh, we're going to be entering some time of turbulence. Someone asked you to remain seated. The seatbelt sign will be on. Just make sure you buckle up tightly. We've asked the steward or stewardess to stop the beverage service so they can be safe sitting in their seat. Please remain seated. And we'll let you know as we get through this turbulence. Now, have you... Wow. Lexington, they applauded here at Park Avenue. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Have you ever been on a flight where they didn't warn you? I was on a flight like that. I was coming back from, from the West Coast, and, and uh, I was on a flight. I was sitting next to an elderly couple. It was probably the worst turbulence I've ever experienced in my life. I was sitting next to an elderly couple, and all of a sudden, like out of the blue, our plane dropped like 10,000 feet. And I'm not lying. It was like 10,000 feet. We found out later on some of the stewardess were talking about it. And we dropped 10,000 feet quickly. Just, man, drop. We hit turbulence. It just pushed us down. And eventually the plane was fine. But the lady next to me, an elderly lady, she grabbed arm and said, son, I hope it's okay. I'm going to hold on to you. And I said, ma'am, it's okay. I'm going to hold on to you. And if we fly out, we're flying out together. <laughs> I got to tell you when, you, when you hit turbulence and don't expect it, you want a warning of turbulence, don't you? Here is Paul and saying, Timothy, the last days are here. Be warned. The, the times are only going to get more difficult. Now, think about this for a moment. If it's true for Timothy in the first century, how much truer is it for us? If the last days were in Timothy's days, how much more in the fourth quarter are we? Maybe we're running the two-minute drill and we don't even know it yet. Think about that. If it was true for Timothy, it's all the more true for you and I. That means as the time gets darker, living a God-honoring life becomes more difficult. Living a God-honoring life is not going to be easy. And so Paul warns Timothy and says, hey, in the end, there'll be increasingly, increasing times of difficulty. Second observation, that is this. Second indication of the last days is that we have self-centered philosophies that will enhance selfish desires. Self-centered philosophies that will enhance selfish desires. Now think about this for a moment. In the beginning of this book, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be strong. And then he begins to describe what it looks like to have character connected to God. The first two chapters are all about character, but, but Paul knows something full well. He knows that character only comes if you have conviction. Character is the outpouring of conviction. Conviction is the essence of the core values in our lives. And so what we really believe will eventually lead to conviction, and conviction will lead to character. So Paul begins to talk about convictions, the conviction of a God-honoring person and the conviction of someone who doesn't honor God, and it's going to play out in their characters. By the way, I see this all the time in ministry, where people want to change their character but not their conviction. They'll be like, Pastor David, I got this situation, and i really like to overcome this situation. I'd love for you to give me some wisdom as to how I can overcome this situation. And then I say, well, well here's the deal. You've got to change what's happening on the inside. You, you've got to deal with the conviction, your belief. You've got to strengthen and fortify that area. And they'll say, well, David, I just, man, I, don't, I don't know if I want to deal with that. I don't know if I want to touch that right now. Well, you can't have your circumstance change. You can't have your character change if you're not willing to change your conviction. If you're not willing to see the conviction is the problem. Conviction leads to character. So Paul here begins to give some descriptions of convictions that play themselves out in character. In fact, he's going to give 18 characteristics. I want to walk through them. And not all of them are going to apply to all of us. But can I tell you, I believe Paul writes this to Timothy and says, Timothy, Hold this up like a mirror in your lives. Let the word of God be a mirror. And while probably all of these are not related to all of us, there's a hint of some of these in us. There's a hint of some of these in me. And so I want to hold the word of God like a mirror as I read this and say, where is it that I reflect this? Take a look at them. He says, verse 2, for people will be lovers of self these are narcissistic people. These are people that are constantly loving themselves. They, they're looking at life and saying, what is going to make me happy? They're the people that constantly give their resume in every discussion they have. Here's who I am. Here's what I've accomplished. Here's what I've done. It's all about them. He, he says the lovers of money. These are materialistic people, Pe people that are wrapped in what they get. If I just have this, if I just have that, it will make me happy. He then says proud. Proud here has the idea of drawing attention to self, drawing attention to self and accomplishments, boasting in self. 
He says arrogant. By the way, I love this word arrogant in the Greek because it's two words combined in one. It's the word over and the word appear. The idea that we over appear. Arrogance is when we, we in, engage and brag above and beyond what we really are. Where we over appear. We're infatuated with the view of ourselves. He says abusive. Eventually, in the end, the last days, people will be abusive. They'll be hurtful to others. They'll harm other people in their words, in their actions, and in their reactions. The next five, actually, very interesting in the Greek, they start all with a negative. There's a, a letter, it's, it's ah, it starts and negates all the, the word that follows. And so they all start with that, that ah sound. And so disobedient to parents. By the way, I love this. Parents, this is a good one. Lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, proud, you know, all about themselves and disobedient to parents. I love that as a parent that is in here. Isn't it true that we live in a world where young people have a, a they have, they don't have respect for authority. Now, young people, I'm not necessarily talking about you. I hope you do have a respect for authority. But we are living in a world where there's an increasingly lack of, increasingly lack of respect for authority. Don't you see it? It's there. There's a lack of respect for authority. That's the word here. There's rebellious hearts and spirits. There will be a lack of authority. People won't respect those in authority. They'll be disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. This is the idea of being entitled. I deserve this. I need this. Entitled. Unholy. This is indifference to sin. I'm willing to sin. I just can't help to sin. I'm going to be indifferent to it. And I'll just say I'm a sinner. And so I sin because I'm a sinner. And we forget what God has done for us to allow us to conquer the sin around us. Heartless. Heartless is an inability to empathize and an inability to sympathize. It's an inability to put ourselves in other people's shoe and have shoes and have compassion for them. It's the inability to sympathize or empathize. Unappeasable. This is people that are never satisfied. Always having to have more, more, more. Never satisfied in their life. Slanderous. By the way, this word in the Greek is the word diabolos. Diabolos is the word devil, Satan. That's the word there, diabolos. Slander is the idea. He is the slander of Christians. It's the slander. It's the idea of of desiring the ruin of others. That's what slander is, desiring to ruin someone else. He says, without self-control. In the last days, there will be people that will be slave to their own appetites. I can't help but to do this. I have no control. This is my lot in life. This is who I am. I just can't give in. There will be uh, people without self-control. Brutal. Now, the word brutal here literally means an untamed beast. An untamed beast. Brutal. It's the idea of someone who has no tenderness. They are untamed. Not loving good. Treacherous. Same word used for Judas, the traitor. Reckless. <laughs> I love this word in the Greek because it's kind of funny. Reckless literally means to fall forward on your face. When you're reckless, you're falling forward without knowing it. You're falling forward into things that you can't see. And all you're doing is causing recklessness to take place. Swollen with conceit. The word swollen literally is smolder. The idea that your head is in the smoke, your head is in the clouds, you're all about yourself, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Anybody feel encouraged by that list? I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, man, this is a dark list. This is not a comfortable reality. Timothy didn't read this and go, man, I'm just so encouraged, I'm going to keep going. This is a dark, uncomfortable list. And for all of us, we do well to look through the mirror of the scripture and say, are there hints of any of this in us? And I, I bet if it's true for, for me, I'm sure it's true for you as well. I have hints of these. I've got to be careful of some of these that tend to be a bend for me. But, but what I want to show you, it's very interesting. I want to show you, I believe Paul here is very intentional on what he, what he kind of pulls out and what is, what is uh, parallel statements. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at the first one. For people will be lovers of self. Then look at the last one. Verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you see the bookends? Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's the issue. 
We live in a selfie world that's wrapped up in self, and so we don't love God because we can't love God if we're loving ourselves. What Paul gets into in this list is that every one of these things is misguided love. Every one of these stems from love that is misaligned, love that is misapplied, love that is misappropriated. All of these find themselves in deepest love, in deepest affections, in good loyalties that are turned from God back to ourselves. And then he gives us these highlights of what I would consider philosophies of the world from Paul's day even to now. If you like to underline, underline the places where it says lovers of something. It's interesting. Notice lovers of self. That's called in philosophy world humanism. It's the me first idea. I'm first. I matter. This is about me. Humanism is the idea that we are first. Lovers of self. Notice the other one, lovers of money. Lovers of money is materialism. It's money first. What I get first, success and money and just more and more and more. It's materialism. And then thirdly, we have lovers of pleasure. Do you notice the highlight here? Lovers of pleasure, which is hedonism. Hedonism, the idea of pleasure first. Well, I just can't help it. I just, man, I gotta do this because I love it. Wouldn't God want me to be happy to give in to this? I mean, it makes me happy. Wouldn't God want me to have what makes me happy? It's hedonism. It's that I want pleasure above God. All of these are wrapped in self. All of these are wrapped in what I want. Now, I want you to consider these philosophies. Can I tell you what I've learned in my life? I've learned that most of my disappointment, most of my frustration, and most of my anxieties stem from a singular thought. And that is, this life is about me. Think about it. Think about your frustrations. Think about your anxieties. Think about the places where you get frustrated and where you maybe feel disappointment. Isn't it true that a lot of them are stem, they stem from the fact that we think life is about us? We say things like, how am I doing? How am I feeling? How am I perceived? How will I be remembered? What does everybody think about me? Now, don't miss this. This is exactly what the world gives as the solution to the problems of the world. Think about this for a moment. Follow me. I know it's a little deep, but think, think about this. This is why these philosophies are timeless until the coming of Christ. We see these in the world from the very beginning. We see, we see humanism. We see materialism. We see hedonism. All about pleasure. Why? Because it's all wrapped in self. Think about the world. It preaches this message. It preaches, listen, if we want to solve the problems of the world, find yourself. You want to solve the problems of, your, of the world, express yourself. You want to solve the problems of the world, be true to yourself. You want to solve the problems of the world, go get what's yours. Isn't it the world's solution to our problems? It says, find yourself, find the inner self and strengthen it and you'll be fine and the world will be better. We've been doing that for six, 7,000 years since we've been created. The fall happened. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because all it does is perpetuate self. And what the world says is salvation, self, Paul says is the problem. What the world says is salvation, actually, Paul says this is the issue. This is the problem. Loving self is the essence of all rebellion. Isn't it true? Yeah, kids, why do they disobey? Because they're selfish little brats. <laughs> if you're a boss at work, why are employees sometimes so difficult? Because they're wrapped in self, right? Think about it. Self-love is the essence of all rebellion. It's because we love ourselves, we rebel. We want what we want. We want to go after what we like. Paul here says, listen, in the end... Self-centered philosophies will actually give rise to selfish desires. People will live more wrapped in self than ever before. Third observation, that's this. Religion will prey on weakness. Now notice what he says next, verse 5. Religion will prey on weakness. So the religion of self will grow, and that's the focus. The religion of self, and he says, having the appearance, appearance of godliness 
but denying its power, avoid such people. He says, here's, here's the deal, Timothy. There will be people that have the form of godliness. There will be people that have the show of godliness. They will have form, but they won't have any substance. They will look the part. They will even sometimes speak the part. But the reality of it is, they will not have any power to live out what God is calling them to. We've all seen it. You don't have to look far to see it. People that profess Christ and people that speak about Christ and yet live far from who Christ is. He says there are people that will have the form, the shadow of this life, but they will not have power. They, they will have form, but no substance. They will have show, but no power. This is what I call cotton candy Christians. Right, some not Christians too, but cotton candy. Think about cotton candy for a minute. I don't know about you, I love cotton candy, as you can tell. Um, years ago, I thought about bu buying a cotton candy machine just so I could eat cotton candy at whim. Man, take that thing, you just take that little, little stick they give you and you just go around and around. You fill that thing up and, and the cool part is to make the cotton candy as big as you can. Like, man, get, get as big as you can. And so you try to get as big as you can and then you take it. And there is nothing better than the rush of sugar that happens when you take that cotton candy and you put it in your mouth. And what happens? You put that cotton candy in your mouth, and this thing is so fluffy and big, and man, it's beautiful, and you put it in your mouth, and what happens immediately? All of a sudden, it just becomes a little ball of sugar in your mouth. It's sweetness. It's got form. It's got no substance. Or this reminds me of a, another form, I can say this. I remember years ago, my boys were like, hey, Dad, can we go get some ice cream? I said, yeah, let's go get some ice cream. And so uh, we went to uh, the store, and we were looking at ice cream, and we are looking through the freezers to pick out the ice cream that we wanted. And one of the boys brought back to the cart this thing called Dippin' Dots. <laughs> Dippin' Dots isn't ice cream. It's not ice cream. It's high-tech, cyrogenic, flash-frozen food. It's not ice cream. And so I was like, no, 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 we're not eating that stuff. That's not ice cream. It's freeze-dried. Anything called freeze-dried isn't ice cream. I don't want to eat it and disappear. I want to eat it and feel full. And so we're going to go get some real ice cream. There's, this is dip and dot Christianity here, right? It's, just, it's got form. It looks the part, but it's not ice cream. There are people that look the part but are actually way off. They have religion without Christ. They have passion and performance, but no substance. We see it in our culture today. Notice, he says the contrast is they have, they have godliness and appearance, but they have no power. What is he talking about? They have no uh, power of the gospel. They don't understand. They don't understand the power of the cross of Christ in their lives. They, they, they're living looking like they're a part, but they have no life-changing, paradigm-shifting, gospel-penetrating power in their lives. Meaning, these are people that look the part, but they cannot then have the power to overcome self to live their way for godliness. Their lives are selfish. He says they look the part, but they don't live in the power. Can I tell you a little hint here this morning is that Ephesians 1 says that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is living inside of believers. Think about that. You're here this morning and say, well, I just can't help but to sin. I have to give in. No, no, no. The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to give in to the former uh, passions of our flesh. No, we can say no to them. Why? Because we have the power of a resurrected Christ in us. Think about that. Many will have the show and performance. They don't live in the power of Christ, power of the gospel. People will live by their list, but not by principles. Now Paul takes this one step further, and notice what he says. Verse 6, for among them, these people that are wrapped in self, are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now let's pause here for a moment, because probably every woman here got a little bit uncomfortable. Why did you just say weak women? Well, this is written for a church in the first century, and it was true. What was happening is these false teachers were coming in, these self-centered people were coming in, and it was women that were being drawn away in the church. Today, that may not relate to every woman. That's not the point. Paul is saying something specific to the church of Ephesus. But can I tell you, I actually think that women can be susceptible to this. Why? Because I actually believe women have a perception of, of Christianity in a way that men don't always grasp. 
women are a bit more perceptive when it comes to spiritual things. Isn't it true? I don't know if this is true in your life. It's true in my world. I look at my wife, and there is a perception. There's times where she'll come to me and say, Dave, I just, I just, I just sense that God is saying we ought to do this, or we ought to react this way, or we ought to respond this way, or we ought to, we ought to do this. And there's something about her intuition that I trust. I trust. Why? There's a perception she has as a woman spiritually before God. I love that about my wife. So it's made, made sense in the church of Ephesus. It certainly makes sense in our day and age. It could be men, it could be women, it doesn't really matter. The point is, there are people being drawn away. I want to show you why they're being drawn away. Why are they, they being led into more selfish living? Take a look at what he says. They are burdened with sins. If you are here, if you're at a campus, you're, you're watching, you, you are weak and overwhelmed with sin, you are more susceptible, you are more vulnerable to being drawn away from God. If you're being bombarded by sin right now in your life, the likelihood of you walking away is greatly high. The likelihood of you walking away from Christ is high. Notice he says, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. If you are being bombarded by various passions and desires that you have that are running rampant, without control, without self-control, running your life, guess what's going to happen? You are vulnerable and susceptible from going into this false teaching of selfishness. It's easier for you if your passions are running wild. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Do you know that if you're religiously curious you are more susceptible to being drawn away. What do I mean by religious, religiously curious? I'm not talking about that we don't want to be taught, we don't want to learn more, we don't want more knowledge. It's the person that's constantly looking for more and more knowledge, but the knowledge is found basic in the basics of the gospel. And yet you're looking for something new. I've seen this happen, by the way, in ministry. I remember a young man coming up to me one time and saying, Pastor Dave, I, I just, man, I've been studying and studying and studying and I don't understand the Trinity. I don't think I can follow God anymore. And I said, What? Welcome to the club, man. I mean, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Bible speaks of it, but I don't understand it. It's way beyond. This is finite reality versus infinite reality. I can't understand how the Trinity works. That's beyond my comprehension. I can define it, but I don't understand it. It was someone who was, man, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. And eventually that knowledge held them captive. Someone comes up and says, man, I don't know, how could Jesus be fully God and fully man? Ah, uh, <laughs> got to ask that in heaven. I don't know. All I know is the Bible says it. Jesus was fully God and fully man, went to a cross and died for our sins. Only God could do that, by the way. Only God could be the satisfaction of our sin debt. I don't fully understand it, but I believe it. And there are people that are drawn away by knowledge. More knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. And what happens is knowledge actually captivates them. And they live in bondage to realities that aren't even true. Paralyzed by knowledge. He says, religion, the religion of self, will prey on weakness. Fourth observation. While it appears like evil is gaining ground, God will prevail. Notice what he says next. He gives an illustration to show us that God will prevail. Verse 8. Just as Jonas and John Braze opposed Moses... So these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, it is qualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, what's interesting is these two names don't show up anywhere else in the Bible. Jonathan and John Brace don't show anywhere else in the Bible. So why does Paul mention them? Yes, we have the Old Testament. We also have oral tradition. The Jews kept great oral tradition. They talked about these things. In fact, there's a book called The Targum of Jonathan, and he mentions these men's men by name. And these men are actually found in the story of the Exodus. Remember back in, e- in Exodus when God says to Moses, I want you to take and deliver my people from the hand of Pharaoh? Moses goes with Aaron and goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And we find that God then shows his power. I want to read this to you because I think it it sets up what we find here in this text. It says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt. I want you to notice that. 
the magicians of Egypt, oral tradition, the book called the Targum of Jonathan actually writes that their names were Jonas and Jambres. These were the two leading magicians to Pharaoh. So what do they do? They did the same thing with their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became servers. They had power. They had some power. They were able to do something miraculous. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now this happens three occasions. They turn water into wine. So do these two men. They d- deliver frogs over the land. So do, do these two men. And eventually God sends gnats over the land. Now you know those little gnats that creep into your house in the fall and just seem to make their way around the sink and everything? Those things are so annoying. That was actually a curse to Egypt that we still see today in the broken world that we live. And so this is the moment where gnats are covering the the earth at this time, the bondage God is delivering the people of Israel. And this is what we pick up in Exodus chapter 8. Listen to this. It says, and they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in, in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret, secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Now watch this. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians, Jonas and Jambres, said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the hand of God. We cannot do this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Here's the point. Paul writes here to Timothy. Timothy, remember Jonas and Jambres? In Exodus, they could do a couple things. They looked the part, but eventually they ran into the truth of who God is, and they said, that is the hand of God. We can't do that. There's no way God, we're we're not God here. This is the hand of God. There was success, but it was limited. We look around the world, and it can seem as if evil is winning. It can seem as if uh, the evil around the world, wickedness, selfishness is prevailing. It could seem like people are having their way, but God has the last words. I love the way this section ends, but they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to them. They're not going to get far. God will keep his word. Yes, it looks like it's prevailing, but God is actually prevailing. You know, we live in a world that's down, but when we look up, it begins to change our outlook. That's why over and over, I think of Paul writing to Titus, he said in Titus 2, 13, he's just looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do well, knowing that the, end, the last days are here, knowing this is happening, the end of days, it's here. It's here, whether it's a thousand years from now, five years from now, or tomorrow, it's here. We do well to look up, look to the hope and the, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when the world seems down, dark, and dim, when we look up to Christ and we find him our confidence, what happens? It begins to change our outlook. We stop looking through the eyes of self. We look through the eyes of God. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have self-confidence? Or do you have God-confidence? Where does your confidence lie in a world that's broken? Listen, if your confidence is in yourself, you may get through a day with that. But you're not going to last a lifetime. Where's your confidence lie? Let me ask you this. Where are your affections stirred? Are your affections stirred toward Christ or are they stirred toward yourself? Are your affections, your longings, your loyalties, are they in Christ? Or are they in what you want? What we need or we think we need? Here we see Paul saying, recognize, remember, internalize the truth that God is with you. He will have the last word. While it appears that evil is gaining ground, God will prevail. It will not last long like Jonathan Jambres. It will not last. So look up. Look up to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the coming of Jesus Christ. Look to the day where death will have a funeral. Let me ask you, where are your eyes looking? Where does your confidence lie? You know, it's funny. I was reading this story about a lady that collapsed at an airport and uh, it was at a gate, they were getting ready to load the plane, and she just collapsed, and something medically was wrong, and so they, they called over the loud system and said, hey, we need emergency services to this certain gate, gate B12 or whatever it was, and, and up came 
forward a doctor who was boarding that flight and said, hey, I can help. I'm a doctor. I'm an internist. And so he began to work with the lady. And as he's working with the lady, this article said that a young boy about 13 years old, 12 to 13 years old, began to kind of shove his way forward. And he kind of pulled the doctor back and said, said sir, move back. I'm here to help. Now think about this for a moment. The doctor's helping the lady, a qualified person, and here comes a 12 to 13-year-old boy who says, I've got this. And he says these words, and the article was meant to be funny, but he says, I've got this, I'm a Boy Scout and I'm trained in first aid. That sounds cute, doesn't it? How many of us are like the Boy Scout? We're like, God, I got it. I got it. Man, I've got it figured out. I've lived life long enough. I've got some wisdom. I've got some knowledge. And the great physician is standing at our side saying, let me take care of it. Trust me. Let your affection stir for me. Let your confidence rest in me. That's what Paul's writing to Timothy. Yeah, there are dark days. Self has overcome. But God will have the last word. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to pray and then we're going to end with a song. As we end, maybe you're here this morning. You don't know Christ. Listen, we are in the last days. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just being honest with you. We are in the last days. If it was true for Paul, it's true for us. Today could be the day of your salvation, a day where you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ alone. Today could be that day where you say, you know what, I'm not saving myself. I'm not getting myself out of this situation. But God can eternally by trusting in him alone who came and died for you and rose again for you. He paid for your sins. He purchased a place in heaven for you and he can transform your life and give you power to live rightly. Today could be that day. If he comes tomorrow, you'll want today to be that day. Maybe you're here this morning, you know Christ. Where's your confidence? Is it in your job? Is it in your situation? Is it in your money? Where's your, where's your confidence lie? Is it in Jesus? The one who promises he's coming in again? Where's your confidence? Where are your affections stirred? W- would you bow with me? And then we're going to end with this song. God, I thank you for your word. I need this reminder. Lord, I so often feel as if I can just solve my own life situations. God, that I've lived enough, that I've seen enough, that I can figure it out. And then I come to you as a last resort. God, the only way we have power, the only way we live in that power is in you. And so God, we do well not to try to live in self, but to rest in you. To to make sure our trust is settled in the firm foundation that you are Christ. A Christ that promises to come again. And so God, as we raise our uplook, God, you change our outlook. As we look to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, all of a sudden what we see on earth changes. All of a sudden the devastation that we see changes because we yearn more for you. All of a sudden we don't give in to self, but we now give in to our affections for you. We surrender to you because you're our confidence. So God, work in this moment. Be our confidence. For your name and glory, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's sing this song as we